Welcome to the Dewhawk Digest, the podcast for all things Loris College. In this episode, we talk with Loris Athletics Hall of Fame member and one of the winningest coaches in school history, Pat Flanagan. I'm Robert Waterbury, Assistant Director of Campus Communications, and I'm pleased to welcome my co-host, Bobby Earls, back to the show, Director of Alumni Communications. Bobby, welcome back. Thank you, Robert. We are going to have a wonderful conversation today. Absolutely. Of course, with our featured guest, Pat Flanagan. Pat, welcome to the Dewhawk Digest. Thank you. I uh, look forward to being here. <laughs> We've got lots to talk about, Pat. And when we start visiting with what we call our Loris legends, you are definitely on that list. But a lot of people may not know where your journey began in entering campus. So tell us how you ended up at Loris as a student. I ended up here without permission from my mother. <laughs> That's always a good start. Uh, my mother was not against going to college, but uh, I was born and raised in the inner city of Chicago. I was the baby. I was the only <laughs> child that she had, and I was fearful of me going out of state. Sure. Um, that being said, my uh, Uncle Joe is the one that sold her into letting me go out of town uh, in those days, we did not have a family vehicle. Mm -hmm. So when I came on campus, it'd be like uh, somebody today coming for a visit. I was coming to stay. Sure. The home environment for a family was wonderful. I did not have good high school study skills. There were some things I did uh, on, as a faculty member to uh, change that for other people. Mm -hmm. But um, I came here then in, in 1959 and um, stayed until uh, 19, excuse me, graduated in 1963. And then your journey, of course, you met your lovely wife, Sheila. My bride, uh, how did I meet Sheila? Yeah, Let how me did think. you? Let me hmm. think. Wait a minute, I can get it into one word for you. Hitchhiking. Hitchhiking. <laughs> I lived in Cane um, Hall here um, first two years. Um, sophomore year, my roommate Joe McGee and a good friend Bill Morgan. It was um, late January, early February, and we decided to go hitchhike. And if we got picked up by grandma or grandpa, we got out at the bottom of the hill, hitchhike back up. <laughs> um, that particular night, there were four high school gals that picked us up. All three of us Guys got a date that night. <laughs> the driver did not get a date, but she did get married, so there's no sadness oh, to the good, story. Good, okay. good. And anyway, uh, in our case, it was 50 years, five months, and seven days yeah. uh, until Sheila passed. Sure. The bottom line is, why does he say seven days? That's just, why does he just say one week? Well, because when you get older, sometimes you need a crutch to be able to remember things. Mm -hmm. So we were married for 50 years. Hmm, Heinz 57. 
five months and seven days. You're using memory tricks. I get it. This is going to be helpful for all of our listeners, including myself. So um, I graduated on a Sunday, as was typical with Loris at that time. Mm -hmm. And absence does make the heart grow fonder. Sure. But we got married six days later. Um, Sheila was from Sacred Heart Parish here Mm -hmm. in Dubuque. And um, so the following Saturday, we got married. That's wonderful. And then uh, I was in the Chicago area for three years at Holy Cross High School out in River Grove, um, teaching physical education and coaching. Oh, by the way, the interview process was a little bit different. The principal said, you're hired. I said, uh, anything with coaching? He says, I'll contact you in two or three months and tell you what, what you're going to be coaching. <laughs> Role reversal compared to today, (laughs) totally. So that's how I ended up being a um, track and field coach. Mm -hmm. And our coaching staff was so large that I coached all the track events, and Tom Spoleto coached all the field events. (laughs) And our track was a green pasture area. (laughs) We we looked forward to having a track meet where we actually run on the track. (laughs) Um, And then the, the other sport was wrestling. And I knew absolutely nothing about wrestling. So we had a coin flip. Jim Byrne was the other person from the biology department and was going to be the school trainer. Uh, both of us were assigned to do wrestling. And so what I did was have a um, coin flip. Jim, what's your call? Heads. Oh, it's heads. You win. You're the head coach. <laughs> um, I, there's no way I was going to be the head coach. There's no way I would be here today if I started off as the head coach. Mm-hmm. I needed learning time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Miles Goddard was uh, a history teacher there who had wrestled at St. Thomas. Um, he's an older gentleman, but he still loved the sport. So he spent more time with me than with Jim Byrne, mm-hmm. but he spent time with both programs. But uh, that gave me uh, a better starting level with regard to uh, coaching. Sure. So. So what opened the door for your return from Chicago back to Loris's campus? Well, in the mail, the postman brought me a letter from Al Schramm. Oh. Al was the uh, intramural director, and Al wanted a uh, staff person. See, over the years, and so I'm going back for Al, um, 1939, until I get this letter in 1966, he ran the show by himself, but there were two gymnasiums. One was called the Upper Campus Gymnasium, which still exists today. The other one is down in the uh, Beckman Hall area, and that was called a Lower Campus Gym. And he always had a student run that building, uh, somebody that was usually a senior and usually very responsible to run the volleyball and the basketball programs that he ran down there. Well, in my case, I happened to do it as a junior and senior. And um, Al and I had a long fine. Never in a lifetime would I have suspected to be able to get this letter, though. Right. And so uh, what happened is Al went in to see Monsignor Foley, the president. And Monsignor Foley said, are you sure that you want to hire him? Yes. Okay, so the next thing, I got a contract in the mail. So that was my interview process. 
<laughs> answering my mail. You have like the best interviewing <laughs> stories. <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you one that um, nobody's ever heard before. This occurred, Al retired in 81. Five, six, later, five, six years later, I'm visiting him. And uh, I visit him about every two weeks, not every five mm-hmm. or six years, okay? But anyway, he, um, he said, Monsignor Foley want you to coach wrestling. And he just kind of dropped it. Because never did I hear that from Al Shram. Mm-hmm. Because I was concerned about, I know what the duties were within the murals. And they uh, meant getting home at 10 o'clock at night, Monday through Friday, uh, from October through um, March. Mm-hmm. And so from a family point of view, uh, wow. And then Al suggested that I go see the athletic director about coaching, and that really surprised me. Now I found out umpteen years later that it was almost almost a mandate, even though I didn't know it. Sure. And uh, I enjoyed not knowing it and just feeling I could help out and, and, and go from there. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the mailman brought us together. The mailman brought us together. So then you, you came back to campus and initially were supporting Al Shram with the lower campus gym right. activities. And then how did that grow into your coaching? Because so many alumni, when I see them, they're like, how is Coach Flanagan doing? They still call you Coach Flanagan. Are you sure they don't call me something else? No, just Coach Flanagan. <laughs> trust okay. me. Honest engine. There's, there's another word that we might have to talk about later then. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, we have to talk about, too, your nickname, Flash. You want to do that now? Absolutely. You have to tell us how that came about. There are two stories. <laughs> and we get to pick. Mine, <laughs> all by myself, mm-hmm. and the wrestlers, mm-hmm. led by Tony Reardon, who's presently uh, head of the Board of Regents right. here at Loris. Anyway... I'll give you Tony's story first because he feels like I might be <laughs> jilting him if I told it second. Tony said in those days, Pat wore a type of pants that golfers would wear in those days that were not only loud in color but loud in patterns. And, uh, yeah, there are some pictures of me wearing those type of pants. <laughs> so that, that's all accurate. But whether that's where the nickname came from or not, my side of the story is, most people don't know, is that there was a Tom Patasson who came from Holy Cross High School, a track runner. He ran here for Loris for four years. And um, to the best of my knowledge, he's the one that came with the word flash with the meaning of being kind of an ironic term. Um, the person knows the stuff but doesn't do the stuff. I never wrestled before. Mm-hmm. I never will. Um, but at the same time, he learned his sport. And, and trust me, it takes a while to learn a uh, sport of wrestling. Mm-hmm. Uh, wrestling is a sport of physics, and there's a lot of things with regard to the, uh, the angles, the twists, positions, and, um, but it was a challenge. And I always accept challenges if I think I can do the job, and, and from there you have two sides of the story. And we uh, get to pick. Uh, you, you get the pick, but there will not be any uh, uh, voting by the, the the alum in general because. Okay. But anyway, we'll let it yeah, right. Yeah, Tony that, might so. actually ask for a vote, so okay. we'll, we won't allow that. Okay. <laughs> now you have coached many sports here at Loris. Is there talk about the sports and and maybe also I'm kind of curious 
do you have a favorite? Is there a sport that you really enjoyed or maybe surprised you? And I'm wondering if you're going to say wrestling. I'm going to predict. Wrestling, it took me, in my mind, three years to be a good coach. There was so much with the learning process. And my learning came through books, talking with people, going to a big Christmas tournament at uh, Northwestern in, in, in Evanston, Illinois. People would be there um, wrestling. First few years, we didn't have people there. Later, we did. But I'd be the guy sitting up in the far corner. People are familiar with baseball. There's Bob Euchre from the Milwaukee Brewers in terms of being their announcer and kind of being in an odd uh, seating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's where I was taking notes mm -hmm. and coming back and, and working with the wrestler or two and what uh, you think we can make this work and so forth. Mm -hmm. And um, I also, in the early years, had wrestlers show their best moves. And we would name the Fundy after <laughs> Terry Funderburg, you know, and, and things like that with regard to our moves because um, I strongly believe in the involvement of the wrestlers. I also did this with, with uh, tennis. I strongly believe in captains. Captains are not a person that just Gets a does, title. What the, does what the coach wants. Right. Um, you can be different than me. But let's talk about it, and I'll tell you why I want something done this way. And they can tell me some things that, you know, there's more than one right way of doing it. I can do it your way. Mm -hmm. And so um, to answer your question, it would be wrestling because that's where everything got started. Nothing else would fall in place mm -hmm. after that. To be honest with you, it took me three years to adjust from men's wrestling to later when I took over the women's tennis, tennis. program. Mm -hmm. um, it was just a different ball game. I can just remember turning, driving the van, turning the first corner up here in front of Kane, going over the curb. Oh. Uh, you see, the wrestlers wouldn't let me drive. Uh, <laughs> well, and I was, re I was reminded for those first three years and, and longer because we had vans in those days. With the wrestling, we were driving uh, two green station wagons. Oh, wow. So With the paneling on the side? Uh, no paneling, okay. uh, but it uh, served its purpose and yeah. it also served its time. <laughs> so. Well, you said that you had three years to kind of learn the job. Uh, you, you're really probably selling yourself short because you had a very, very successful coaching career here at Loris. Uh, not only in wrestling, but also in tennis. And you produced many All-Americans. And as you look back, what, what do you think was the secret to your success as a coach? Being a good listener. Mm -hmm. um, being a good recruiter. Mm -hmm. And related to that, I'd like to tell you what my coaching philosophy was. Mm -hmm. I can tell you it's different today. Uh, I'm telling you that this is the way I did it. I would never do it a different way. It was something I developed and didn't start with it. But my philosophy developed into recruiting the person, the student, and then the athlete. Person, student, athlete, in that order. Mm -hmm. I want chemistry with the person first. 
We need to be on the same page as we work with each other. The student, that's what the college is all about. I want the student to be motivated to be successful in the classroom and have a goal of graduating in four years. Yes, despite the sport being the main reason for initial contact, the athlete is third in my list. And that's not with negativity, but giving more credence to the person and the student. With the athlete, I am not as much interested in terms of where they came from and what they did as much as I'm interested in what do they have left in the tank. Mm-hmm. What, what are you willing to still put out on the mat to improve? Because I have a middle school philosophy. That was one word, improvement. Mm-hmm. I have coached high school state qualifiers and players who never played on a high school team. Mm-hmm. All I expect from all of them work hard to improve his or her abilities to the highest level possible. Mm-hmm. So, you, you set a great foundation because, and I think you can be very proud, Pat, that today our coaching staff in the athletic office absolutely support the student first, and that's what they always point to, is they're a student athlete. They put the person as a student ahead of the athletic competition. The athletic competition is great because it teaches them a lot in their life and contributes to who they are. But as you mentioned, they're here as a student, a person, and someone who is really chasing their dream. I will tell you that when I retired from wrestling, there were three coaches. One lasted maybe three years. The other two lasted two years each. And then finally, thank goodness, Randy Stewart showed up. Mm. Randy Stewart was the only one out of the four coaches that I referred to that was interested in the student athlete. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And from there, he had much success yes. because of that. Yes. And so um, I'm very happy that Randy yes. finally took over the program. Yes, so. yes. And now, too, in, in his stead, T.J. Miller um, has taken over the wrestling department now, too, and is kind of continuing on that tradition and doing a, a great job. Randy did a great job. T.J. Miller is doing a greater job, and that has got nothing to do with any negativity with Randy. But, I mean, anything I ever did and got out of, I expected somebody to do better than me. Mm-hmm. And that's just that's what right. happened for me with Randy coming in, for Randy with T.J. Miller coming right. in. Uh, the sky's the limit with regard to what the wrestling program mm-hmm. can do. Isn't it and great? just to mention briefly, I am very happy that we have Chad Fenwick as the uh, men and women's tennis coach because he has great teaching experience and he is willing to really spend time with people to get them to be better. With the wrestling program, you asked uh, how I did with different sports, but I go back to 1968, uh, Paul Meinzer and Bill Herter were the first two wrestlers that were able to go to state, uh, excuse me, go to nationals. At that time, we were with the NAIA organization. Um, what happened was it was held in um, Nebraska, uh, UNO, University of Nebraska at Omaha. Uh, Bill wrestled a couple matches and was eliminated. Paul uh, wrestled a few more matches and ended up placing seventh. Now, let me put seventh into perspective. 
with the NCAA nowadays, there's always 16 people in a, in a weight class. Mm -hmm. NAIA, NAIA was open-ended. So there's anywhere from 25 to over 50 that I saw during my wrestling career wow. or coaching career. And um, he was seventh, Paul, was out of 40 wrestlers. Incredible. Unfortunately, it was the top six that were all Americans. Mm. Oh. He missed it by one spot. Back in the uh, late 70s, Mark Birch, similar situation, um, took seventh. Oh, the following year, the national organization changed the definition of All-American and made it to top eight. Yeah. Oh, uh, my goodness. I've talked to Mark about this, and he really has a good attitude. Aww. His attitude is probably better than mine because I just felt so sorry <laughs> for that. Sure. It was yeah. like he wrestled a year too early at the college. Well, <laughs> your, your athletes are your children. I mean, they become part of your family. Yeah, right. You, you take care of them. You look after them. And so that is absolutely understandable. Yeah. And then, um, you know, of course, we had some All-Americans at Ken Byer a couple of times, uh, John Duffy. But the one national champion was um, Salvatore, oh Sam Fiorella. Yes. Um, for him, nationals were at Morningside. I, I should say, in Sam's career, the first year is another story, but we couldn't get to nationals. But what happened was that there was bad weather. There was a, a plane strike. Uh, we'd probably get to the day of the wrestling itself, and that's no way of So we, we skipped that first year. And then Sam placed third the next year, second the following year, and then national champion as a senior. And he had to wrestle a guy from uh, Whitewater. And this guy had a, a move that was not in most collegiate programs. It's called a Russian arm bar. It's a takedown. And it's where you, you grab a person's wrist and the elbow area and you manipulate them so you can get the takedown. Well, nobody knew how to really beat it. But uh, Sam went home at probably at Christmas time, met somebody from the military. And in the military, they knew what a Russian armbar was. So he learned some things from this guy. But I never saw Sam practice it until the afternoon before the Nationals in the motel room on his mother. Oh, no, he did not. <laughs> yep. Oh he did God. not take her down. Good. That's, he, he that's a good showed sign. He just showed us how the move was. And, and the move involves turning your back to your opponent. So it's like facing somebody. Wow. And then turning around, it's like... Oof. You can get taken down when yeah. you try that, buddy. Right. But there's a, there's a way of coming in, in low in terms of doing it. And uh, let's face it, the guy from Whitewater never seen the move. Mm -hmm. You know, most people never saw his move, mm -hmm. the Russian iron bar. Mm -hmm. He never saw anybody in a match do it. And I know, Sam, I could be wrong, but he got at least two takedowns, maybe three. Because <sighs> the final score was six to four, I think, in that match. But um, some other wrestlers that I had of consequence was a um, Keith Kelsch. I only coached him as a freshman. Sophomore year, um, he was a national champion because I wasn't coaching him anymore. No. no. <laughs> uh, uh, because that was the 81 year when I uh, retired. Sure. So I just had him as a freshman. But he did qualify for nationals. And um, 
his style of wrestling was when it came to takedowns, forget it. His opponent's going to get the takedown nine out of ten times. Mm-hmm. It was just a strength that he didn't have, but he developed it. He became a national champion the following year. Right. Anyway, in his case, he's losing this match 10 to 5, first period. A takedown is two points. Escape is one point. Oh, the 10 points represent five takedowns. The one point represents five escapes. Mm. Second period, pretty much the same. I don't know, score might have been 23 to 12 or something at the time. Third period, Keith gets to where he wants to be. Down on the mat, but he's in a top position. After a while, he turns the guys back to the mat and gets a couple back points. Nothing close to a pin. About a minute or so later, he gets a better hold, turns the guy, and pins the guy. I have never stood up for a wrestler that long applauding. It wasn't so much that he won, which was important, but I've never had a wrestler be be behind by that much and win by a pin. I've had wrestlers be behind by a, a big score and manage to come back, but never by a pin. So that was just a tremendous accomplishment. What determination, what perseverance. Now, I might get myself in trouble uh, with these <laughs> next two. Uh, some might call it fabrication. I will call it just being absent-minded. Okay. Um, Pat Tobin was a transfer. He um, came eligible second semester, and we always open the second semester up with a tournament uh, at uh, Carthage College in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Well, at the seating meeting, this was an A-team tournament, which most of them were. So you're always trying to get the first four spots so that you usually get somebody unseated, and hopefully you automatically will get a win there. Although you really never want the number one seed because number one and four are in the same bracket, so you get them in the semis, mm-hmm. and you don't want that. So anyway, um, Pat Russell the night before, his record is one and zero, and all these other people are you know seven and three or eight and four. So I didn't say anything, just let it ride. So anyway, um, Pat ended up not only winning the tournament, but winning every match by either a pin or a large score. I mean, he just did well. The thing that I forgot to mention was that the night before his first match. His first match, he wrestled, I think it was Chris White from Lewis College, who in the Chicagoland area for our size college was a stud, was an excellent wrestler. I forgot to mention that at the seating meeting, but he's only 1-0, so we just (laughs) let things ride. (laughs) Because it didn't make any difference. I don't know who... Pat wrestled in the finals if it was a number one seed or not. It wouldn't right. make any difference. The scores are so wide all the way mm-hmm. through. So, And then this happened uh, one more time in a different sense. Uh, involved uh, Tom Ketman. Tom Ketman was our 34-pounder. And we're going to one large tournament uh, a year besides the Nationals. And that's a Wheaton tournament. 24, 25 teams in it. And so what happened was Tom comes to me and says, I want to drop down. And Chuck Cressy, the 26-pounder, said, okay, I'll go 34. It doesn't make any difference to me. 
Tom, are you sure? You've got to cut some weight. Yep, I want to do it. So we get to the seating meeting, and Tom's record with everybody that's in the weight class is probably about number seven. Mm -hmm. So why am I going to speak up when the guy's record is not even going to be recognized and they're just going to deal with the other people, as they should? Mm -hmm. So Tom is wrestling the first match, and a wrestler sitting next to me said, that coach over there is yelling at you. What? I'm not sure what he's saying, but they're not good words. <laughs> um, I can continue to concentrate on the match. So basically, he was probably calling me a sandbagger, uh, somebody that uh, didn't tell tells the truth, but not the whole truth. <laughs> and nothing but the truth. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Anyway, uh, I know Tom made it to the finals. I can't remember if he... Uh, Actually, Chuck and Tom both made it to the finals. From one one at the other one, took second place. Mm -hmm. um, Notre Dame was at that tournament. Mm -hmm. We actually placed ahead of the University of Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. And uh, but those are my uh, great memories. Yeah, there's some other seeing me, but right. we'll just stay with those for for now. <laughs> well, and then on the tennis side too, because we don't we don't want to cut tennis short. Right. That's that's really where so many people also remember you and. You still hold a, a record as one of the winningest tennis coaches in history. Thanks for telling me that because I didn't know it. <laughs> um, I just I tell rest, uh, I tell tennis players play one point at a time. Uh, as a coach, you just right. play one match at a time. Exactly. Anyway, with the uh, tennis, when Alex Fram retired in '81. I had to retire from uh, wrestling because of the uh, night hours with intramurals. Mm -hmm. uh, they went from 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock at night, Monday through Friday. Anyway, um, as a, uh, the year before, Linda Hopman is one of our majors, and she's on the women's tennis team and complaining about the coach, complaining about we could be doing better, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, she finally talked me into it. And so uh, the following fall, I took over the women's program. And um, I found out something else about the team that Linda forgot to tell me um, <laughs> was that there was a lot of bickering among the players mm. themselves. And I'm going to tell you, these players were very talented. Uh, with that being said, um, I invented, please listen carefully, slowly, and do not interpret the word until I get to explain okay. mushrooms. Uh, okay? okay. All right, good. Uh, yeah. Mushrooms have some different meanings today. My mushroom talk was just garbage talk, silly talk. Mm -hmm. And so uh, my job, these girls are that talented. My job was just to keep them happy. Mm -hmm. I, I will take very little credit for really coaching them up as such because their skills were pretty well handled. Uh, who were three of them by Bernie O'Connor because they oh, came from Waller sure. High School. Right. Uh, another one came from uh, Hempstead, another one from Senior High School. But the whole idea was they were a very talented group. Mm -hmm. And um, team-wise... I was going to say, you helped them build community. You right. helped them build, through your mushroom talks, right. you helped them build that community. Yeah. Well, some people thought the way that was the way I normally talk, but it wasn't. <laughs> it was something just on the court. Okay. <laughs> But um, I will tell you this about that team. Since then, I coached maybe three or four teams that would be close in ability to the 1981 team. 
Well, I'm going to give the 1981 team more credit because they had a more experienced lineup. The other ones, I have to give credit for doing almost as good with uh, less experienced players, but uh, the comparison really isn't uh, necessary. You have a good team, you have a good team. Mm -hmm. You know, we have one team that was uh, undefeated. Uh, but anyway, some of the other highlights with regard to tennis, uh, one of them would be the longest point belongs to Susan Andrakitis from Rockford. Susan played, interestingly enough, a competitor from Simpson, who I tried to recruit to come to Loris. I think it was at conference. And if Susan was here, she'd give me the exact number. But I would just tell you that it was over 100 strokes. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Back and forth for one point, which Susan won and eventually won the match. But... Uh, I think that's where I got my tennis neck from going to the well, left, I bet. I bet. going to the right. I had to go find a different position to uh, watch the match so I could just do it focused without moving. Oh but um, she deserves a lot of credit for that. Now, the longest match is a tie. But it's a tie by two different people for different reasons. First, uh, Martha O'Connor. Uh, Bernie O'Connor from Wallert. This is his daughter. Mm -hmm. um, she uh, won the match in three hours and 15 minutes. Oh, my goodness. Interrupted, which means it rained a few times. The courts fortunately dried out, and they were able to finish the match. The other one belongs to Maria Herbeck. Maria had hers uninterrupted. Um, I think it was at Wartburg. Uh, irregardless, it was three hours oh, and 15 minutes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so these are times that you see with the pros playing mm -hmm. on TV. Uh, right. To see it with uh, amateur tennis is something else. And then maybe just one more story. <laughs> Did I ever kiss my players? <laughs> <laughs> we better have a, uh, an asterisk to that comment as well. Between the mushrooms and the kissing... You really have to explain. Well, I'm a little uncomfortable with the way you looked at me when you said that. Too. <laughs> <laughs> so, this happened at Knox College, Galesburg, Illinois. Um, we had a match a year before with Knox, and I don't remember what we what we beat them, and uh, their coach wasn't very happy. So this year, when we show up, the head coach isn't there. The JV coach has the lineup. Well, there's a term in, in tennis in terms of, I'll just call it cheating. They didn't, they didn't get, you're one through six. It's supposed to be by ability. You're number one, Billy, number two, Billy, mm -hmm. go from there. Mm -hmm. His number one and two players either were JV players or somebody that he just picked up off the street because no with, with all due respect, they were simply terrible. Mm -hmm. So what they did was their number three player played number. Um, the number three player played our number three player played their number one player, oh and it went down goodness. that way. So we were mismatched. So he expected to lose two points. He expected to win four points. And I remember poor Karen uh, Kleiss. she was our number three player, I believe. 
she never lost the match all season right. until this match mm. because of the mismatch. Sure. Not because she played badly. Right. There's only so much that you can do. So what happened was we won some singles. We won some doubles. And with the, with the doubles, though, we um, score was 4-4. Four, four. And my uh, final two players on paper should not win this match. But in reality, they had the mental toughness mm -hmm. to come through. And that was Amy Bohr and Joelle Ropars. And when they came off the court, oh. the coach kissed them on the forehead, okay? Okay, on the <laughs> forehead. On the forehead, <laughs> yeah, got it. Yeah. Yes, yes. I'm not sure it was the left or right side. It was the forehead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well-deserved, okay. too. Yes. Well-deserved. Without doubt. Well, you know, Pat, when you talk about these stories and these players, uh, those who know you well have probably been on the receiving end of a note, a card, maybe a newspaper clipping, or maybe even a sheet capturing their stats. I didn't know you knew that part of my history. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do good I research. Think you... I do really good research. So every Monday morning from a weekend, that was my busiest day. I would come in the office actually a half hour earlier and start clipping away and uh, putting little elementary school um, stickers on, mm -hmm. such as amazing, wonderful, great, stuff like that. Not just for my sports, but for all the sports. Right. Right. Um, I wanted people to get more out of Lawrence College in a, in a different way. The point is, I'm grateful for the students that mm -hmm. did mm -hmm. call, um, write back. Didn't make any difference. If I never heard from them, mm -hmm. I'd hear from them on the night of the senior dinner. That other kind of remind, oh, that's the guy that. Yeah. And so, uh, and then there's others I never heard from, and I don't care. Mm -hmm. It was what I wanted to give. I didn't need to receive anything. Mm -hmm. I didn't sure. need a Christmas present. I just needed to know that students, athletes, would know that there's other people that are reading about them mm -hmm. and not just in the Laureate. You so. always made everybody feel very well-loved, appreciated, mm -hmm. and helped them to see in themselves maybe what others were seeing that they overlooked. So as you look back at your time at Loris, what are you most proud of? Interesting. One thing, as a student, my senior year, we started, I was the vice president, we started the Student Tutor Society. When I graduated, excuse me, when I retired in 2006, that program had a different name to it and basically had um, majors in biology, chemistry, whatever, mm -hmm. uh, available to help tutor individuals with regard to uh, any weaknesses they might have. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they have some form of that still going today, maybe even more group-wise, so do. forth. But uh, I was uh, part of the, the group that started that. And um, another thing is my study skills handout. Uh, you have to understand, from high school, this guy did not know how to study. Dr. Edward Schuster was in the Spanish department. 
and he had some sort of a very small pamphlet. It didn't make any difference. It was the intention of what he had there that I was impressed with. And I learned one thing off of there. And by learning that one thing, I was able to graduate from college as well as graduate with honors because of this one thing. There were other things involved, but this helped me the most. And I'll give you an example. If I had, my first test was in religion on a Thursday. I was taught on Tuesday, study half the material. On Wednesday, review that half of material, study the other half. On Thursday, review and take the test. And I've expanded that to one-third and one-fourth based on the intensity of the uh, mm -hmm. subject matter. But I developed that in the 80s. I updated it every year until I retired in 2006. And then in retirement, because I still had contact with students here, I um, did it every two years. And then it just so happens that this year is the last year I decided to do it. I sent it out to a number of people that would hopefully I took my name off of it. That was the key. My name was on it originally, but I took my name off because I'm not after the credit. I want the student mm -hmm. to be a better student. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was another thing that mm -hmm. I'm very proud of. Um, related to that, I had a question asked me by um, Dr. Mary Johnson from the psychology department. At the time, she had another duty of being in charge of student services, um, religion department, campus ministry, um, campus security, intramurals. So we were one-on-one. -on -one. Forgive me, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> I lied to you. Uh-oh. <laughs> this is true confessions. <laughs> this is okay. Um, Pat, how much do you really enjoy your job? I said, Mary, 98% of the time, 98% of the time, I wake up in the morning and I can't wait to get to work. Mm -hmm. That was a lie. Uh-oh. What was the percentage? Well, 99%. But if I told her 99%, <laughs> I would get into a longer discussion about it. But I figured if I stayed back an extra point. There you go. Uh, and it worked because then we got to the next topic. There you go. So, you um, were pretty good at uh, using a little reverse psychology on her. That's tough to do. <laughs> I know because she's a psychology professor. I know. Forgive me, Mary. <laughs> I think Mary will forgive you. Yeah. I also really enjoyed the uh, MOI classes. Mm -hmm. Oh, I want to say one more point with the study skills. Um, I use them with our student athletes. I, I share them with others that would be appropriate. I use them in my MOI classes. But I also use them with regard to um, losing a recruit. In other words, in mid-August, I would send out a letter to the student athletes that I decided not to come to Loris. And... I meant everything that I said in there was a handwritten note, and then I included, included the study skills. So they're going to another college, mm -hmm. but I'm still giving them That's study right. skills. Mm -hmm. I had two reasons for doing this. One, I wanted the last, Loris, the last college for them to hear about. Mm 
was Lewis College. That being said, sometimes people don't like a college after a year and want to transfer. Mm -hmm. That being said, some have cousins, other relatives. You know, I didn't go to this place, and this guy is sending me this. Mm -hmm. Again, I didn't do it for me. I did it for Loris College. I wanted as much as we can spread the word. Uh, that was my way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, part of that kind of plus your your philosophy, you know, talking about person, student, athlete, in terms of how you recruit them, I and mean, you're, you're relating to them as a person, as a student before you, I mean, the athlete part has now moved on, but you're still relating to them as those first two components, yeah. so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, uh, how do I say, it made me sad, but it made me happy mm -hmm. to send those letters. Mm -hmm. I, I just felt uh, some good in some way. And it might not even be with that person, but it might be their their niece, 15 years down the road, mm -hmm. uh, looking for a college, uh, things like this. Yep. Uh, I, I never do things for myself. I know. You, I, you I'm very poor at that, in fact, I'll tell you. <laughs> but I will do things for Laura's College beyond belief. Uh, yes, you will. Yeah. And, and you have been recognized, too. And I know you, you don't keep track of scores, you don't keep track of points, and you don't keep track of awards. But also, you are one of our distinguished alumni recipients for the great impact you had here at Loris when you were here, but also the way in which you continued to support Loris after retirement. And that speaks volumes to you, Pat. That made me feel awful good. Mm -hmm. I often appreciate that. You also had the opportunity to work some, with some amazing individuals. So your time and tenure here at Loris, you worked with some real legends, some impactful characters uh, over the years that in turn probably had an impact on you. Who do you recall or comes to mind when you think about your time here at Loris? Oh, my, my quick answer is Al Schramm. Mm -hmm. um, not because he got me here, but because he's a great Catholic who is a very strong, organized teacher, and uh, things from him carried over into me. Mm -hmm. Um, I did things differently with the intramural program, just like a uh, co-captain could tell me to do something different and it's a good idea, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But um, he'd easily be number one on mm -hmm. list. Mm -hmm. um, he did so much for the cut from 1939 right. until 1981 was his tenure here amazing, at the college. Amazing, amazing. A great man, sorry to see him go, but uh, very happy for the influence he had on me, mm -hmm. but also on students. Can I interject with a few miscellaneous things? Absolutely. Okay. Um, the registration at Loris College when I was a student was having the registrar look at our transcript, put our schedule in an envelope, and the night before classes started, we got our schedule. But then in the early 80s, a program that was overseen by um, the academic dean, Ken Krauss, and handled directly by the registrar, Jerry Noonan, had us deal with individual registration. And what happened in that process was we registered people here, mm -hmm. we registered people in the Chicago area, so that the Chicago area people didn't have to come on campus, campus. To, 
But in the long run, I mean, it was a great program and it served its purpose. But in the long run, you had to get residents' life involved with it. They had to be, and so what they've done now with it is the next stage mm-hmm. with it. Absolutely. But um, being one of the uh, pioneer uh, counselors with that was just such a joy. And uh, I, how do I say it? They're all good counselors, but we all had different styles. Mm-hmm. And my style was, even though I might know your transcripts, I'm going to ask you some questions. Um, how are you in English? How's your ability as a writer, spelling, punctuation, grammar? Mm-hmm. And uh, you give me an answer. I know in the back of my mind who should be teaching this person. I knew every faculty member. And without making a big ado out about it, I would simply register them with an instructor that they would work well with. Because I had my own son and daughter go here to Loris. Mm-hmm. I don't want them coming to me complaining about their classes because of their instructor. Mm-hmm. And I understand, there are no bad instructors. There's just different styles of teaching. Mm-hmm. I just matched up the students with the instructors and uh, I felt very good about the registration. So. I don't have any special stories, but I do want to mention the fact that I did have men's tennis for three years. And uh, with the men's tennis, I would tell you the history of Loris, and a lot of this is under uh, Monsignor Timothy Gannon, had some great tennis teams. And the team that I inherited um, was one of them. Again, an experienced team, just like the, the women were. Uh, didn't need much coaching. Uh, they weren't pickers. They just got along fine. Sure. And it was just a timing thing that I was able to take over for um, with the program. Anyway, uh, guys like uh, Kevin Woods, Mike Beckman, Jim Pomerick, uh, son of Bob, Chuck Lampy, Robbie Shankar, and Brian Kellerman, who placed uh, first in the conference at number four. Mm-hmm. during that first year. And um, since then, I know there has not been as strong of a men's team. A number of them before, these guys, but none since. But I know with Chad Fenwick, he's not that far away from having teams that will be in that same group mm-hmm. and probably better. And that's what I look forward to in, yes. in, in terms of coaches. So. When you took over as coach, I know with wrestling, you had no experience with wrestling. You just kind of came in cold three years at high school and then started coaching here. What was what was your background with tennis when you took over as a head coach for tennis? How much experience did you have with the sport? At age 16, I remember hitting a tennis ball for the first time. McKinley Park in Chicago, over the fence. And I was so proud of myself because I, I made because I made contact yes. with this racket and the ball. You were playing baseball with your tennis racket, uh, okay. hitting it over the fence. Um, and I was doing more <laughs> baseball at times, so it may have been a baseball swing for that matter. But uh, my experience was really just uh, enjoying the game, mm-hmm. and uh, the edge that I had was teaching at the college with regard to the skill classes. Mm -hmm. So when I took over for the uh, women's program, I had no coaching experience, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I was more prepared to coach Mm -hmm. than I was with wrestling, that's Mm -hmm. for sure, so. MOI, modes of inquiry, Mm -hmm. that class still exists. When I taught it, um, we had topics, I think I mentioned before, of 
gambling. We could pick our own topics. I was just going to say, now we've brought up gambling, we've brought up kissing, and we've brought up mushrooms. So this has probably been the most entertaining conversation (laughs) we've had in a long time. (laughs) Definitely the most unique. (laughs) Nobody ever said I played with a full deck, okay? No, you you are awesome. You are awesome. Well, one thing I want to say about the MOI class, first of all, um, I'm sure it's expanded in concept but the basics are, are still there in terms of the active learners and so forth. Um, and I enjoyed working with the students. Um, every class had a peer assistant. I always chose a female because I wanted the opposite gender look with the class if it came to anything with regard to personal counseling and so forth. And I'm going to tell you that that class made me a better teacher. And this is, this is what happened to me. Um, the students with MOI were given assignments individually, group, give presentations, so forth, a lot of active type learning. Mm-hmm. That being said, I took that all over into my health class. I took that over into my uh, team and individual sports class where we would have teams, we would have captains, we would have assignments of um, PowerPoint presentations. Um, I became more of the fill in the blanks person. So if we're doing um, health and, and doing drugs, uh, when the topic was covered, the students with their different names would ask questions. And then at the end, I would add what I thought I didn't hear and wanted to complete mm-hmm. the concept. Mm-hmm. So we did the same thing with badminton. Mm-hmm. Uh, the person who had badminton, in this case, had to read a chapter and visit with me individually because I wanted to answer all their questions. Sure. Then when we went back to class, the captain had to answer all the questions. I didn't have to answer any. You had it Un- figured out. Unless there was something that still needed to be clarified. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why, how do I say it? It made me a better teacher by teaching less, involving students more, and I just loved it. You figured out a way to engage others to participate and to think and to contribute without just feeding them the lines or without just feeding them the information. And that's that's valuable. Getting away from that straight lecture mm-hmm. concept. You did a great even job. Even though you could ask questions with your straight lecture, mm-hmm. there still wasn't enough of a break I know. from the hearing the same faculty right. person's voice. But I mean, I, I was just part of a large group. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how it was done. Mm-hmm. But uh, MOI taught me how to do it better. Right, mm-hmm. so right. I give credit to that program in my own way. Well, we could talk forever and a day and have many, many, many more stories. But as we wrap up our conversation together, if you think about Loris and you had to sum it up in one word, what would you say and how would you, what word would you pick? You know you didn't ask me this question before, I right? didn't. Nope, I'm <laughs> Trust throwing me, this is unrehearsed. <laughs> okay. Totally unrehearsed. Um... My best description is the word excellence. Um, Everything that people work towards isn't just trying to 
reach a goal, but to be the best at it, whether you're a student, whether you're the athlete. Um, excellent. Um, and again, it, it's the same with the different faculty members here. They may be different departments, but they all have the same goals. Mm -hmm. And so um, excellent would be the, the word that I would use. At the same time, um, I was here for 39 years, and I can't stop preaching the good that Lawrence College has done for students over the years. Mm -hmm. so. Well, the excellence is because of your contribution to it, Pat. So thank you. And many others. Thank you. Uh, you're, you're exactly right. But thank you for your contribution. We are, we are forever grateful. So Appreciate it. You bet. Yeah, and thanks for, for sitting in and sharing your stories, kind of taking us on a little tour through your, your history with Loris and uh, sharing uh, the origins of the Mushroom Talks, which <laughs> I'll, be, uh, I'll be, be listening. I'm going to be paying attention to other we people talking to me. Is, is, new. It could be is this a Mushroom Talk? Are they Mushroom Talking to me right now? <laughs> Thank you, Bob. But thanks again. And, and Bobby, once again, thanks for, for joining in and My doing pleasure. a great job. This is so much fun. And I also want to thank our producer, Trent Hanselman, for making us all sound good. Mm -hmm. and, and thank you to everyone who listened into our discussion. For more podcasts as well as Loris news and features, be sure to visit the Loris Daily at daily.loris.edu. And you can also find more podcast episodes on iTunes and Spotify, so be on the lookout for those too. Whether it's from the Loris Daily site, iTunes, or Spotify, we hope you'll join us for the next Dewhawk Digest. Until then, take care of yourselves and each other, and go Dewhawks. <laughs>